We have another wonderful crowd this evening. We're thankful so much for your presence here that we can gather and sing these songs and pray and open God's Word and uh, look at what God has to say to us. It's important that we uh, try to tune the world out of our mind when we come into an assembly like this. And what a wonderful singing service to help us do that. Uh, just wonderful. I appreciate it so much. This evening, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, love, but perhaps maybe in a different way than what we would normally talk about it. Uh, I want to, first of all, I'd like to present an idea to you that may be foreign to some folks, but I believe that love is a decision. It's not something that just happens to us. It's not something that just is a feeling that overwhelms us. It's not that romantic type feeling that uh, young people get. Love is a decision. And with that in mind, and, and we'll look at that decision a little bit from the aspect of uh, love, not loving the world. We can decide what and who we love. You can make a decision to do that. And I believe that you and I can decide to love God. But in order to love God, we have to decide first that we're not going to be in love with the world. And the reason why that is so is because God explains it to us. And the Apostle John, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in 1 John 2 verse 15, the scripture there says, love not the world. It's a decision that you can make. A tug of war is raging in your life. Tug of war rages in my life every day. The world pulls against me. God pulls for me. You can also put it this way. And I heard it said many years ago that the devil votes against you. God votes for you. And you make the deciding vote who's going to win the election. So with that in mind, thinking about not loving the world, John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now the commandment comes to us that we're not to love the world. The question I would like to ask you is, uh, what world is he talking about? When the Bible states the word world, there are many different uses. And if God is commanding us not to love the world, what world is he talking about? Psalms 93 and 1 says, The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself, the world also established that it cannot be moved. We talked a little bit about this last night in God's providential care. In the fact that God has set things in order for us, that we can have a place to live, and that we can flourish, and that we can grow. 
Isaiah 24 and 4 says, The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. There's a world that exists, and we know it as a natural world. And we know it as what we talked about last night, where God feeds the birds of the air. And he clothes the, uh, the, the, the flowers of the field. Is that the world we're not to love? When John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Are we forbidden to love the world of nature? Now, nature is a word that comes into play in most people's vocabulary on a regular basis. I love nature, someone says. Is that wrong to love nature? And what do we mean by nature? When we talk about nature, are we talking about God's providential care in feeding that? In feeding the birds and clothing the, the, uh, the flowers of the field and even taking care of me and you and giving us a place to live? What do we mean by nature? Well, let me uh, read you a quote from a guy that was sm smarter than me. And I found this, and I like what he says. This comes from a fellow, uh, C.S. Lewis. He says, nature means what happens of itself or of its own accord that you do not need to labor for. Kind of like what we were talking about last night. When it rains in Tennessee on a regular basis, I don't labor for that rain. God set those things in order. And you know, when he set these things in order and he created the earth and these natural order of events that occur, and part of that is giving you and me a place to live on this earth, and the sun to shine and the rain to fall, and as a result, even wicked people have something to eat. <laughs> it's not based upon your good moral behavior, whether or not you have something to eat. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of wicked people that seem to flourish in this natural order of things. Wouldn't you agree? Sure. C.S. Lewis says, nature means what happens of itself or of its own accord, what you do not need to labor for, what you will get if you take no measure to stop it. And I think that's a good definition of nature. But he goes on and he says, I think every natural thing which is not in itself sinful can become the servant of the spiritual life. But none is automatically so. When it is not, it becometh either just trivial as music is to millions of people or a dangerous idol. Now, in hillbilly talk, <laughs> and not C.S. Lewis talk. Basically what he's saying is that the things of nature that you and I appreciate so much, other people do not appreciate them. And other people can even grow to a point where this thing of natural occurrence becomes an idol to them. And they become a worshiper of the creature rather than the creator. So if nature is elevated or the natural occurrence of things is elevated to a, a, an un unrighteous level, then you become a servant to that thing. You understand? So C.S. Lewis is a pretty smart guy to, to assimilate all of this information and think about it, but it's not that complicated either. 
Because God basically tells us these things. And when we're commanded not to love the world, he's not talking about not appreciating the natural things of life. You can appreciate those things. But if you get to a point where you become a servant to it, and you make a decision that you are a servant of this, and let me remind you, you serve what you love. I serve my wife because I love her. Sometimes I don't serve her well. (laughs) She always serves me well, always. But we serve what we love. So when we're talking about natural things, it is not what God is talking about, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for us not to have an appreciation of the natural that exists in our life. We can appreciate those things. Furthermore, the Bible even tells us to appreciate those things. Notice in Psalms 8 and 9, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The earth declares the excellency of God, and we can appreciate that. The beauty of God's creation magnifies God. I stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and took that picture. And I was, the first time I ever saw it, I just couldn't believe it. And I could not believe that anyone could stand there and look at this ever-changing landscape and not appreciate God. And not appreciate what he's done for us and how he has loved us. Psalms 19 and 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We step outside at night and we see a West Texas sunset. That's declaring the glory of God. Now you can look at that, and you can say, you know, there is a creator. But this sunset does not declare who this God is, does it? We don't come to Jesus by learning and by looking at a sunset. And that's the difference. It declares the glory of God. So therefore, we cannot afford to love and to worship that and become a servant to the natural things, but we can appreciate and we can say, thank you, Lord, for being such a great creator and for being such a loving God. A word that is often used in the Scripture to describe to us and to tell us what the world is, is the word tabel in the uh, Greek. And it means the earth, literally the earth, as moist and therefore inhabited. It is not a dry, desolate place. It is also considered, when the Scripture gives this word and uses this word tabel, it's talking about the globe, but also its inhabitants. So when you read the word world in the scripture, then you need to see and to learn what world he's talking about. Uh, In this particular case, when it's used tabel, he's talking about particular areas of the world, perhaps. Could be talking about Texas, could be talking about Tennessee. It's a particular region. However, another word that is used is used in John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that word world there in John 3.16 is cosmos. Now most of us have heard the word cosmos. What that means is an orderly arrangement. Decoration, by implication, the world in a wide or narrow sense, including its inhabitants. Literally, or figuratively, the adorning of the world. Now, the adorning of the world, who, what is the adorning of the world? Me and you. God adorned this world by placing man on it. And the cosmos, then, means the world of men and women, mankind. For God so loved the world, cosmos, that he gave. God didn't die for the natural things of this world. He died for mankind, for the adornment of the world. He died for the jewel of his creation, the adornment. Galatians 1 and 4 says, Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. That also, that word there, world in Galatians 1 and 4, is cosmos. However, he clarifies, doesn't he? There is an evil world of men. According to the will of, the God, of God, our Father. And he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from that. You know, we see that same application when we look at the Old Testament. And we see the pattern, or uh, if you will, the type and the anti-type in Noah and the flood. God saved Noah by a great flood. The Bible says that he saved him by water. Peter did. What did he save him from? We saved him from this cosmos of evil men. A world of evil men where there was violence continually and only eight souls were saved in that manner. And the sin that was raging and that order, that cosmos that was ruling the world at that time. Now according to the Galatians 1 and 4, Jesus died so that he might save us from this order this orderly arrangement that is involved in the lives of evil men that will consume you and consume me if we get caught in it. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died for all men. We're commanded to love the world of men. And we can love and appreciate the world of natural events, the table, and also the cosmos of men. 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Here again, the commandment is to love, and to love the brethren is to love the cosmos of men. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, he continues. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. When John declares to us to not 
to not to love the world, he is not telling us to hate men. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the opposite is true. You and I and our devotion to God is measured by our amount of love that we have toward our fellow man. We cannot love God whom we have not seen unless we love our brother whom we have seen. Mark 16, 15 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, cosmos, this orderly arrangement of men that God has adorned the world with, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And John 16 and 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. The cosmos of sin. And Jesus does that. And the Holy Spirit does that. And through the word of God tonight, I'm standing before you, and this should be a reproof to the cosmos of sin. And and of righteousness and of judgment, he concludes. The world of sin. Notice Ephesians 2, verse 2. Where in time past you walked according to the course of the world. Now let's pause a minute and think about that. There is an arrangement that is going on right now. I got tickled during the, uh, <laughs> then during the last election, the presidential election, got, and how could you not get tickled during any political election? But at any rate, I thought it humorous when our president said that he didn't know much about politics, but he knew how the, what made the world tick could talk. I thought that was pretty pinpoint. There's something that is ticking and talking in the world. That's true. There's an arrangement that's going on. And there's a lot of people knows what makes the world function and move. They're involved in that. The course of the world. You know what course means? It's the path of the world. Think about this system that you and I live in. It has a course and a path. In this course and this path, there are certain rules that apply. People get rich for a reason. They get rich for a reason because they understand the course of the world. And what makes the world tick and talk? That's one reason they get rich. But those who do not not understand that and cannot cannot, uh, uh, abide in that, they have difficulty in the world. There is a course of the world. A course of the world that he's talking about here in Ephesians 2 is the course of the world of sinful men. Now what is that? of cosmos, of sinful men. Well, I'll tell you what it is. And you know, because you and I as Christian people, we were once involved in that course of the world. He says we were. 
It's if it feels good, you do it. That's the course of the world. The course of the world is me first. Isn't it it amazing the paradoxes that God gives us? That if I'm going to be one of his children, I have to, in order to have life, I have to die. In order to be rich, I have to become poor. If I'm going to love him, I've got to love my brother. (laughs) That could be a paradox. (laughs) Sometimes it's difficult. The course of the world. We walked according to that. That means there must be another course that's taking place that we can choose other than the course of the world. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. There is, a, there is one who has established this course of the world. And he's called here the prince of the power of the air. We know him as Satan. Peter calls him our enemy. And he sets the course of this world. Luke 4 verse 5 says, And the devil taking him up into the high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I believe, brethren, that's the course of the world. And those things that make the world tick and tock. And he showed it in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever will I give it. I will give it if thou... Therefore, will worship me, all shall be thine. That's what Satan offered Jesus. I don't believe for a minute that he would have been honest in the deal. <laughs> Why would I believe that? He's the father of lies. However, Jesus did not dispute the fact that he had the opportunity to give it if he would. After all, Adam and Eve sinned. They fell short of the glory of God. And sin entered into the world according to the scripture by Adam. And then the course of the world began. And Satan, as the prince of the power of the air, rules that course of the world. Let's explain it another way. To think about this. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, Would there have been any need for any kind of currency system, a barter of trade, buying and selling? Now, I believe to answer that is we can see the existence of Adam and Eve and how they lived prior to sin. Prior to sin, Adam and Eve obeyed God. And the fact that they kept and dressed the garden. That was the commandment. When they needed something, they would go out and get it. Everything was supplied by the hand of God. And we see no system whatsoever. And then the system begins after the fall. And it continues to this day. As a result of this system, we see scriptures like this, that the love of money is the root 
of all evil. Now, I didn't say money was. I said the love of it. So don't misquote me on that. And it seems to me when John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, there could be some implications that you and I could go back to the root of this very problem, of this cosmos, and this order that exists of sinful men that live based upon the course of the world of envy, of strife, of hate, of murder like Cain and Abel. Of selfishness that says it's what matters is what I get. Of greed. Of covetousness. We go on and on and on and on. And according to Jesus, the love of money is the root of all evil. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If you and I make a decision, and many people have made this decision, that they're going to follow the course of this world. That the system that is involved in this world is what rules and dictates their life. That they become a servant to this course of the world. He says that this God of this world, now you can take that literally as Satan or you can take it uh, as a system that Satan has imposed upon people as a result of sin. At any rate, either one of them will blind your eyes. And Jesus can't be seen through that. That decision of the heart and of the mind has to say, I want to be a servant to God, not of money, not of my body, not of the things that this world can offer me, not of the things that I see, not of the things that I feel or touch. And when we make that decision and we come to Christ in obedience, then the light of the glorious gospel of Christ can shine into us. And we can see something. We can see that the things of the course of this world that have been temporary all along. Have you ever noticed and been around someone that the course of this world has blinded their eyes to the point that even when they're old and on their deathbed, they're still thinking about this world? And the systems of this world. And they're still worried about it. I knew a man that was in so, so much in love with money that when he died that his loved one made sure that he had a $10 bill in his shirt pocket. I'm telling you the truth. I don't think he took it with him. But they thought it might give him a little peace. Isn't that sad? And that's being blind. That's being blind by the systems of this world and thinking that the world, this cosmos, this order that Satan has started into motion can somehow bring us some kind of satisfaction. And we look for it even to the moment that our spirit leaves our body and then we open our eyes and 
according to Luke 16. That man like that, he wakes up and he's in flames. How sad. Somebody says, how do I know if I'm in love with the world or not? Well, one person said, if you profess to be a Christian yet find full satisfaction in worldly pleasures and pursuits, then your profession is false. I kind of like that. Now, in hillbilly talk, what I would say is if you've got one foot in the world, meaning the systems of this world, you know, what can I get? How much can I make? How powerful am I? Look how smart I am. And whatever it takes to get ahead, if you've got one foot in that and one foot in heaven, you're of all men most miserable. Because neither one of them is going to bring you any satisfaction. They cannot fulfill you. Many people try to live with one foot in heaven and one foot in the world and they find their life miserable. Other people make a claim, but yet the profession of their life, by their profession of life and their actions, does not back up that claim of being a Christian. You want to know whether or not you love the world? What brings you happiness? James 4.13 says, talking about the course of the world, Go to now ye that say today to tomorrow you will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. That's all the course of the world. Many people will say and do that. And James reminds us, I'll continue, I don't have it on the PowerPoint, that our life is but a vapor that appeareth for a time and then vanisheth away. Many people say, I'm going to do all these things, and they live according to the course of the world, and then one day their life is snatched up. 1 Timothy 6 and 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6 verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Does that sound like a course of cosmos to you? does to me. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. Do you love the world? Do you love God? What are you pursuing? What brings you the most joy and happiness? Better question, who are you serving? Who are we serving? Because we serve what we love. Our battle is a tug of war. And it's basically temporal versus eternal. And it tugs at us all the time. We live in a physical body. It's a temporal body, meaning temporary. We all know that we're going to die. We all all say that we want heaven. Just some of us say we're not homesick yet. And it's temporal versus eternal. We must dwell in this temporary arrangement. We have no choice. 
But brethren, we do have a choice whether or not we're going to fall in love with it. Tonight, we need to examine ourselves. Have I fallen in love with this temporal arrangement? What drives me? Who do I serve? What do I serve? For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. I'd like for you to consider in closing a young man that traveled with the Apostle Paul. It's a young man by the name of Demas. And I want you to consider Demas in this, in this light. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he's a hero in the New Testament. By everyone who understands anything about the New Testament, Paul is one of those guys that come to us as an example of a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've traveled with some preachers in my time. But I've never traveled with a man like Paul. <laughs> and nobody's ever traveled with me would accuse me of that either. Why, Paul was a man that could walk, could heal somebody, could raise the dead, cast out demons. Paul could take a beating and like it, in the sense that he rejoiced for being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Not many men like that. But Paul writes, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He had a choice. Demas did. He could continue with the Apostle Paul, or he could be in love with the world. got a picture there I think it's called the city of lights and for good reason now I don't think there was a city like that with Demas but there were other cities with Demas and inside this city everybody that goes to New York City talks about this engine that drives New York City there's an engine there it's an engine or a cosmos of people and this motor drives. And inside this engine at New York City is an engine that makes people wealthy and famous. They write songs about it. They do all those things. And write books about it. Odemus walks along with the Apostle Paul. He's heard him preach. And he looks and he sees the lights of a city. All the fun things that are taking place in that city. All the enjoyment of that city and all the money that's being made in that city. And Demas decides that he's going to fall in love with the world. And he walks away from Paul. And in walking away from Paul, he walks away from Jesus. Because you see, Paul is walking with Jesus. Paul had both feet in heaven. He had left the world. He had denied the world. 
And even to the point of suffering and persecution, his treasure lay in heaven, but not Demas. Demas had fallen in love with the world and left Paul. Tonight, you and I have a choice to make. The choice is who will we serve? This engine of our world, of our cosmos, this arrangement, it's going to be here as long as this earth stands. Now, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. We don't know when. That you're going to be taken out of this arrangement. You won't be a part of this world. You'll be a part of a spiritual existence. And in the spiritual existence, that is a place where there is no change. And there's no turning back. In this spiritual existence is a place where we will find ourselves for an eternity. And it becomes eternal. And it is eternal. Our arrangement today that you and I face in the building of structures, in the buying and selling and trading and getting gain and losing money and, get, and all those things, all of those things are temporary. And I can just imagine hearing what Paul would say to Demas. Demas, don't look at this that way. This is all going to be, go away. It's all going to end. Don't, don't fall in love with it. And I'm asking you this evening that if you've fallen in love with the world, you can fall out of love by falling in love with Jesus Christ and deciding that he is who you will serve and who you'll follow. I'm asking you to make that decision tonight. Come forward, take a seat on the front, and we will assist you in any way that we can as we stand and sing.